You've tuned in to DSC's SUP, your podcast update on what's happening in the NDIS, giving you the lowdown on the what, where and how on current developments by cutting through the noise to make the complex a little simpler. Hey folks, welcome to SUP, what's happening in the NDIS. It's a brand new podcast in a census status report and an update on key areas of the NDIS. And today we've got two DSC subject matter specialists, Rebecca Brissett and Brent Woolgar, in our virtual studio to help us unpack what has become a highly controversial, complex and confusing area, better known as home and living. But first off, Rebecca, tell us about your interest in the support bit of home and living or housing and support. Sure. So I spent a couple of decades in the sector and the most of that was working at the front line directly with people with disability. And I got a real passion for making sure that their needs were being met while still also making sure the organisation was able to be viable and do what they need to do. Because we get pretty down and dirty on detail, I didn't mean to do that level of alliteration, but anyway, we do like to do our specialisations. We asked you when you started at DSC, Rebecca, to, to really get to understand the support side of home and living, which in those days was SIL and then became ILO pretty shortly afterwards. So you spent quite a bit of time really just looking at the massive level of detail underneath it as well, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. And you're right, it has changed quite a bit from when I first started. And no shortage of new changes as we go. Definitely not. And Brent, you, you came at it from the bricks and mortar bit. Yes, that's right been fortunate to have been involved with specialist disability accommodation or SDA fairly much from the outset of it becoming a support within the NDIS but exactly as you've identified it's it's getting harder and harder to separate home from living all the decisions are being made together now so it, it is incredibly important to to have a really detailed understanding of both so Rebecca, when we first tried to do this podcast a couple of weeks ago, I, I tried to unpack home and living and talk about housing and support and get you to explain all the different terms to me. And by the end of it, I, I felt more confused than I did at the start. And I thought I knew a bit about this stuff. Can you, can you take me through it again one more time, please? Sure. I think it's understandable that you're confused. I think that's probably where most of the sector is sitting at the moment. So I guess the best way to look at this is how we've gotten to where we are and we we had a situation where we needed to transition in a large proportion of the sector people living in group homes or living in already formed systems and environments and SIL was obviously the way to do that and Brent and I often refer to your podcast with John Walsh when we're talking about that transition and what SIL was yeah. And it's now become something quite different. And I think that the introduction of ILO definitely shook it up a bit. And now when we're talking about SIL, we're not necessarily referring to the supports in the home. We're referring to the way that we charge for those supports. So um, uh, being able to wrap around funding for people that might look like SIL, that might look like ILO, and be able to really start to unpack where am I living, what do I need, and what can this provider do for me? So a little bit of history for people who don't know about this, but 
deinstitutionalisation, which happened largely in Australia in the 1970s, saw many thousands of people with disabilities come out of institutions. And we were pretty clueless about what to do. And most of them ended up in group homes. And so, Rebecca, mm -hmm. when you're talking about the transition into the NDIS, it was stacks of those group homes, lots from Victoria, New South Wales, less so from other states that didn't have as many, that came across already fully formed, not really fitting the construct of the new system. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's still quite a prevalence, as you pointed out, especially in Victoria and New South Wales that had relatively high numbers of state-owned group homes that transitioned across and have, have struggled in a lot of ways to fit within the NDIS model. And I think it's exactly as Rebecca was describing, there's been this constant transition and we've seen that accelerate over the last 18 months as we strongly suspect a lot of moves and changes being made. And I think the unfortunate part from what we've witnessed is that the providers have been pretty much left in the dark about these changes and have had to constantly change and more so in the last 18 months than probably ever. And it's it's starting to really cause some problems. So Rebecca, take us through the key changes and the key constructs that we need to understand now in 2022. Yeah. So when SIL came across, it was definitely still replicating a lot of the functions of the block funded system so the roster of care was developed to be able to assess an environment and apply support ratios to it essentially and majority of people came across with better funding I don't know that their supports really became that individualized I think it just really gave providers a sense of starting to assess a person's support needs and and kind of really navigate what that means for them. So can I jump um, in add, just to show that yeah. I'm understanding or just to clear up that I'm understanding. So when these group homes come across and become part of the NDIS, the roster of care pretty much reconstructs what they were before they come across. Pretty much. I mean, in a lot of cases, houses rolled across together and you know I know certainly where I was working the increase of funding for each location was quite phenomenal and it meant that we started to dream a lot bigger around what that could look like but and that's not what's the, happening now is it we've where have we gone to now well now it is possible but you've got to kind of work your way through a lot of the mess that's happening so I don't know that back then there was a big shift to individualized funding specifically we were still funding a location yeah. and in the last six to 12 months the agency has really started funding individuals so you may have had a person who's been sitting on the last six years on one-to-one -one funding just because of the people they were living with and just because that was the default funding that was left to make that environment viable, the agency is now going back and assessing that individual and saying, well, actually their support needs are much lower and that cross-subsidy that was happening within the environment isn't happening as much now. So, so I'm going to stop you again because so we go from a, a, a group of individuals and it was pretty much fund the house, not the individuals in it, and now the agency, the National Disability Insurance Agency, is trying to fund the individuals in the house individually. And you're saying, bugger me, this is not always a good thing. 
it's it's not because providers aren't prepared for it. I think it is a really good thing, actually. I think that providers are trying to navigate in a space that has changed overnight. So the the answers we were getting from the, the agency a year ago are very different to the ones we're getting now. And there's confusion. Like Brent said just before, this shift we're going through now is bigger than the original transition because it's really shaking up the way we need to look at funding, the evidence we need to collect and how that is formulated to be able to um, to benefit both the provider and the individual. And, and, and I don't know that we have the skill set for that yet. So those of us with more suspicious minds would wonder if there's funding cuts being hidden underneath the move to individualised funding. Are there funding cuts hidden in this as well, where the overall quantum to people is going down? 100% there is. People are sometimes having half the funding they had prior to whatever their last review was. That's a massive shift. At an individual level, some people are getting a lot less. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most people are getting a lot less. And I think that people limit that to SIL, but, you know, in our conversations with ILO providers from Western Australia, I think sometimes the cuts were bigger. People went from quite generous budgets in that environment to significantly lower. So it's it's across the board cuts in home and living. I think there's an intention to redistribute to more capacity building focused funding and, and funding that is based on on things the person really needs, technology, equipment, also supports. But, you know, if you're in a shared environment, you probably don't need three one-on-one staff members running around. So it's a really clunky transition. And and you threw in SIL and ILO. Those terms, are they still current? Are they topical? Do we need to know what they mean? They are now. They will be less so in the future, I believe. So right now when we're looking at SIL, it's very much people who still share their living in most cases you can get it one-on-one but it's quite rare now but generally their 24 hour support needs are provided by paid by the hour support workers so that would definitely be the distinguishing factor for SIL and when you're looking at ILO it can be similar but we're bringing in more informal supports probably more technology and it could still be 24 hours but not just paid by the hour ratioed support staff. We're still um, t- tussling with definitions. The SIL is much more likely to be seen in group homes and ILO is much more likely to be seen in community? Not necessarily. A lot of the people who have been living in group homes that were potentially not necessarily needing to be there are now being funded flexible core. It doesn't mean they need to move. And I think that's a really important thing for the sector to understand right now. While people's funding is being classified, not to stress that that means that individual that's been living in that environment for the last 30 years all of a sudden needs to move out. And I think that's why it's really important to not get emotionally attached to the brands and the names of the funding because you will automatically be limited for the outcomes a person can achieve based on what our belief of SIL or ILO is. And what we'll see is a lot more people in group homes being funded through any one of the three different brands in the future, just based on what the benefits are of that brand of support funding. So we're moving to much more individualised funding, but it appears that there's a number of 
cuts coming through or there's less funding coming through for a lot of individuals. What does it mean for people on the ground, both participants and providers? It's it's tricky. There's there's a lot more pausing to contemplate whether it's enough enough funding, but I think on the ground right now, the, one of the biggest issues would be workforce and and actually getting people working on the ground. Okay. A lot of our polls we do in our workshops have moved away from the funding reduction as being the main point of challenge to workforce, which you know is very concerning considering we've lost such a lot of money in that space lately that that the workforce can be getting you know, top billing. Yeah, I, I did want to ask you about that. I'm going to bring you in in a tick, Brent. I'm very keen to talk about SDA, but let's just keep going on support for a tick. You can't go anywhere now, a shop, a coffee shop, any institution without seeing a sign in the window, usually for three different kinds of staff that everybody's looking for. It was always difficult to attract staff to 24-7 housing for people with disability. We, we always struggled to do that. It must be impossible now. I would say so, because now we're in a space where you can't create stable rosters. So you can't sustain a workforce. A lot of the providers we're talking to are increasing their casual base, but that comes with a lot of challenges because you can't necessarily provide enough work. So a lot of the workers are working across multiple organisations, which means they will shift based on the the culture, the benefits, where the work's coming in. So, you know, a lot of that consistency that we were seeing in the past where support workers could get to know people and really start to get those capacity building outcomes would be incredibly difficult. And I think COVID had an even bigger impact on that because people can now choose to be a lot more selective about how and where they work. And for me, this just screams risk, risk all over the shop, risk for people who require health-related support, risk for people who require support in all kinds of different ways, and the risk of getting dodgy staff slipping through the system as well. It's just shitloads of risk. Yep. Yeah. You know, we're, we're always optimistic about the future, and I think we're about 10 maybe 15 years too early to be able to share that risk. So I think ILO brought in a an awareness for people that one person, one provider doesn't need to hold all the risk. And that, you know, when you when you integrate with other providers and families and a wider support network, then then people will step in. You know, we don't have staff today, so family will come over. But we're not in a space where that can happen yet. We're not that fluid and there's still that real divide between formal and informal supports, which is leaving everyone incredibly vulnerable. I think we've just got a really immature sector right now in relation to how to make that work. And hopefully we we upskill very, very quickly because I do think people with disability are going to be the ones that are impacted in the short term. So you, you and Brent run a discussion group, which is a pretty informal one called SNAFU, which is a monthly opportunity for providers to come together and if anybody doesn't know what SNAFU stands for I suggest you google it but basically they come together and shoot the breeze and tell you the good stuff and the bad stuff and I imagine it's you know fairly weighted into risk issues and tricky issues Brent can I bring you in where where are you sitting from on this this stuff yeah look from an SDA perspective the the changes to the support funding the, the support approach 
is driving providers at the moment to to really move away from more independent living options. So uh, we're seeing a lot of providers still looking at the bottom line going, funding's being reduced. We're going to have to congregate more people together so that we can spread a reduced amount of funding to support more people. And I don't necessarily agree that that is the right way to approach it. And it's a little bit controversial, but everything that we're seeing around the home and living funding processes, the funding reductions, how new people entering home and living are being funded and how their funding's being determined, it's effectively an independent assessment. So people are being reviewed based on the supporting information and using the, the NDIS words, they're being given a funding level which is based on their need, not how much a support type costs, which is the real fundamental shift. So providers to be able to meet that new level of funding based on a participant need, in a lot of ways need to completely re-engineer how they engage with people and do a very individualized approach. I just really want you to take me through the logic of how does that work that you don't get provided for what a support type costs, you get funded for your funding needs, but sure your funding needs are partly determined by what a support costs. No, well, they're, they're making that decision completely independent of how the person may choose to live. But do you understand how that's done? Because I don't, you could just explain it to me. Or... Yeah, so they'll look at an individual's uh, you know, functional assessments, whatever assessments are deemed necessary, depending on the, the person's challenges, and they'll make a determination. Now, if we rewind back to some of the groundwork that was being done for independent assessments, I'm nearly convinced that that's what's happening at the moment in home and living. Here is the individual primary diagnosis, secondary challenges, et cetera, et cetera, level of functional impairment, experience, all of these factors, which equates to this amount of support funding. And exactly what Rebecca was saying, it, it becomes just a consideration of what brand of support a provider is going to use as the basis of their model to provide the support for that individual moving forward. We're going to see a real shift away from a pure SIL model or a pure ILO model to individual models. And whether it's SIL or ILO will just become consideration of, of how is the provider compliance being monitored and what line items they're using to claim. That's, that's all the brands will mean in the future. Just from a really practical sense to answer your question, the roster of care, like I said, created a, a replica of the block funding mentality. Yeah. So if we consider the way someone was funded two years ago, they would have some sort of change in their weekly environment. You know, they may decide to go out on a different night. They may change workplace. They may go from sleepover to active night. 
And the providers would then go and be able to go back to the agency and say, okay, well, there's three other people living with them. We now need to alter their supports to create whole numbers of ratios to be able to up everyone else to active night Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. this location viable. And what the agency is now saying is we're not doing that anymore. If one person has a change in circumstances, we'll consider changing the funding, but you don't automatically shift three other people to meet their needs. And that's the, the major difference. And that's why they're, I assume they're saying we're not funding what a provider believes is the right model or what a provider thinks the support needs are because you put those four people in the provider next door, that funding will look completely different based on their risk appetite, based on the technology they use, based on their their casual versus full-time support workers. So, so Rebecca, I'm going to jump in because you guys are doing my head in and it's not you, it's you explaining what is an incredibly complex system. And I think this is really valuable, but We're moving in a COVID environment. COVID is not over. We're moving in a COVID environment to a much more individualized system where the agency is not interested in the systemic issues anymore. It's interested in the individualized issues, no matter what systems impact it has, which is, I think, what you just explained. If it stuffs up how the group home operates, not our problem. We're funding the individual. But we're not ready. We're 10 or 15 years. I'm repeating back what you're saying. I'm getting it. We're 10 or 15 years away from understanding how systems integrate and how informal supports work with formal supports. And these guys are moving too quickly with too much freaking jargon. And they're doing it at a time when we can't get staff and risk is going through the roof. Have I got it? You have. I I do think that, you know, and I'm always the one that throws this out in the workshop. So I don't think anyone that's heard us speak will be surprised providers were resisting change as well. We were waiting for the manual to come out to tell us how to construct our businesses. We would call up and say, how do I implement this? How do I make it work? So I do think there was a bit of a need for a shove to, you know, come on, own this, step into the space, stop trying to, you know, just slightly adapt to to meet whatever change is we needed a complete shake-up I don't think it's been done well I don't think there's enough knowledge of the intricacies of operations and how a provider works and I think that is definitely needed because it could have been more supportive it could have absolutely shifted with less tension much quicker less risk but that would take Um, a very heavy emphasis on co-design with people with disability, but also a a very clear understanding that SIL providers aren't just being difficult. The system was problematic and to change it is going to be difficult. Okay, so it is going to be difficult. And just imagine I'm a new CEO coming in and I've just understood what you've just told me and I'm in a bit of a panic and I've come to one of your staff room meetings and I'm saying, holy shit. And how do you reassure me? Can you reassure me? hope so otherwise I don't know what I'm doing yeah I I think that one of the first things we try and do is say you know this is your business this is your passion this is what you do tell me why you do it and tell me what benefit or value a person with disability would get and let's build a business around that rather than build a business around reacting to the agency and reacting to funding go back to basics and really look at do we want to do support in the home 
if we do, will we limit ourselves based on the SIL construct or will we be willing to expand and then really start to present a confidence around what you can and can't do and sometimes say no to things? And that's a big shift for people, I think. Can it be done, Brent, or should I go back to hospitality? <laughs> no, I think it can definitely be done. And it's exactly what Rebecca was saying, that a lot of these changes are needed the process that the agency is using is too fast enough information being fed to the sector to keep them up to speed with what the end game is you know rebecca and i talk to a lot of providers almost on a weekly basis that say look where we want to go on this journey we do want to change we can we can see some of the the goals of these changes and we really like the individualized approach but at this point in time, it's it's not a case of the goalpost shifting. We can't even see them because the agency hasn't given us any information. As Rebecca said, they haven't given us the manual about where is all this leading? What is the end game? And so we meet in those snafu meetings, just a lot of frustration, a lot of people saying, can you just tell us what we need to do and how we need to do it? And that's that's probably one of the really frustrating parts. But to use an example, we've we've helped providers with some really innovative models that they've come to us with, you know, we're a SIL organization, we're running this particular location, and because of the funding reductions, we're losing money. And so we've used a risk-based approach and we've adapted the services that are being provided. In one case, we moved in a semi-retired couple into what was previously an OOA apartment in an apartment building. They now live there rent-free, but they provide the overnight sleepover support in return. So there's all these models that, that can work, but it's difficult. So Rebecca, if you could instantly give providers a, a single piece of knowledge or a baby step that's patronizing but a step that they could take what what step would you suggest uh, i would implant the language and the understanding of what is needed to speak to the agency to not limit the conversation. So we've been doing a lot of work with Kylie Morgan, uh, one of our colleagues around overlapping home and living support providers with the allied health reporting. And we've just spent six years teaching OTs, physios, psychologists how to write reports to get funding in a home and living sense and now overnight those rules have changed and we need to go back to really professionalizing the reports that come out of providers but also shifting the reports that are coming out of allied health so I would give them that knowledge you say one thing in the wrong term to the agency and all of a sudden computer says no and I think being able to really shift that will start to unlock a whole heap of funding deficits we're getting right now because we keep asking for funding in the old sense and we really need to be asking for it in the new sense but we don't know how rebecca let's talk about feelings <laughs> this stuff is hard where would you go with that it is hard and i am infuriatingly optimistic as someone that has spent so much time 
on the ground, really seeing how the system, and it changed many times when I was work, working for a provider, how the system can impact the people, support workers, people with disability and can really get bad outcomes. I think this is just another shift. The sector has risen before in our various states and territories, and I think we can do it again. I think it's about really moving into a space where you can be proactive rather than reactive. And, you know, we've done some workshops where we will map out, here's where we've come from, here's all the documents can read and create a really solid argument about where we will go in the next two years and we've rarely been wrong because the information's there you just need to be able to put it together and have the confidence to step into it and I really want the providers to do that because the worst thing that could happen right now is we have another round of providers falling over like we did just because it feels too hard and that would be devastating in my opinion. So you guys probably don't know this, but in 1990, I wrote a report for the Victorian Council of Social Services called Innovations in Housing for People with Disability. And one of the things we said was, it's not going to be very long before they separate housing and support services for people with disability. That was 1990. How far have we got? <laughs> oh, we haven't got very far at this point, as you as you probably remember when the NDIS was in its, you know, pre-design stages back in 2013, 2014, there was some pretty strong wording in things like the Productivity Commission reports around separation of, of supports from the bricks and mortar. And then as the NDIS rolled out, we get the quality and safeguarding framework, that language really did get watered down quite a bit. But with the home and living policy consultation that commenced June last year, we're starting to see a resurgence of the, the stronger language around separation of supports and reading direct from an NDIS document that's only probably a, less than a month old, the home and living policy will consider the separation of home and living supports where possible to improve participant safety and security. So in my mind, separation is coming in that policy it's just going to be a case of how far reaching is that separation is it just for sda or is it for all accommodation where a person might be living independently receiving ndis support funding for example if it's the latter then unless it's done very very carefully where potentially an unwelcome side effect of that could be increasing a massive problem for people with disability to access open market properties. So if you separate those two streams and can no longer cross-subsidise some of the actual housing cost with the support costs, we're facing a huge problem. Brad, yep. so you, you predict this is going to come out in the new policy. Can you tell us when you think <laughs> it might be? I, got, I thought I'd got away with that. You're asking me these questions. So... Anyone that's been to our workshops will know that Rebecca baits me every single time to make a prediction of when the policy will come out so that she's I suspect you've got it wrong, wrong a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, not yet, but it's every looming. time. Well, who knows? There is one more testing group session with the home and living testing group this week. And then that is the final sort of formal stage in the process to develop the home and living policy. So you know, we could see it as soon as 
October, November, but my prediction currently is we're going to see it just this side of Christmas. Well, that was the first episode of SUP. What's happening in the NDIS? I still laugh every time I say that. We looked at the support side of home and living. We're going to come back and talk about the SDA. That's some really interesting stuff that we'll unpack with you in the next episode. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Brent. That was great. Pleasure. You're very welcome. Thanks, Roland.